This is a Pivotal Conversations podcast. History dictates that all fiat currencies fail Mm -hmm. because they do the same thing. The Roman Empire had the same problem. They were on a uh, fiat system. They expanded, and the only way to expand that rapidly is to produce more and more debt. And then at some point, it crumbles because it becomes unaffordable to to repay. And so we're now at a point where we're starting to see that with um, with all the, the fiat systems that we have currently around the world. And it's basically from all of these policies and, and everything that was put in place in order to help thrive and, and, and give us a better standard of living. We're now at a point where we're at the end of the debt cycle where we're in that debt spiral and there's no way coming out of it. Let's just go and see the world and just show them what it really means to live like golden. Yeah, we'll go. All right, so we've got a pretty special episode. I'm sitting here with Brados. Brados is, is back. He's uh season finale. We're, we're finishing up for the year, um, and we've got a massive episode coming to you, um, which is going to be a, a two-part mini-series. Yep. And, well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. I appreciate it. It's been a while. How are you feeling? You, you're a bit sick. Yeah, I've got a bit of a cold, unfortunately, so um, you're going to have to bear with me a little bit. My- <laughs> But I just wanted to right. point that out, just to just to put the pressure on a little bit. <laughs> you know, just heat heat things up a bit. Um, so I will be bringing plenty of heat. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, well. So I, I want to give preface to the conversation that we're about to have because it's a bit of a different episode. We've never really done one like this. So bear in mind if there's a few ro- uh, a few a few humps in the road. Um, but we watched a well, you know, I watched a. Uh, I watched a YouTube video with Raul Powell and um, Robert uh, Breedlove, which, you know, at the time, the first time I watched it, it was like, it was quite eye-opening. I was like, wow, this is really something. Uh, and then the second time I watched it, I, 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 you know, I wasn't as much in awe, so I was taking in things that I didn't take in the first time. Mm. <laughs> and then the, th- sorry, <laughs> I'm really battling here. And then the third time that we, that I watched it, it really did become something that really started to make sense and really able to put it all together. Um, and and really, what what we're what we're talking about is this this interview, which we're we're going to commentate. So we're going to go into snippets of that, and then we're going to try to really put this in layman's terms, but really explain in detail what these guys are talking about. Um, but I, I really thought it was a, such a profound interview that takes a lot of these feelings that you have, a lot of these yeah. things that we kind of knew that were happening, you know, like inflation, you know, um, you know, the obviously Bitcoin and, and um, housing prices and asset prices going through the roof. A lot of these different moving parts, this was kind of the, the thing that brought that all together and started to make me understand it on a, on a deeper level. Yeah. Um, and it just made a lot of sense. So I thought, you know, what better way than for us to, to kind of pull that apart and, and really start to discuss that. So it's the macro uh, framework that has been obviously building up over the last hundred years. And so this is, it all ties into my economics background and, that sort of thing, because this is all the stuff that we learned back in uni days, and um, it's just been something that I've been compounding my knowledge over the last ten years or so as well. Um, and so, yeah, he just he put it all together in such a uh, simple way that made us all understand really, uh, and 
it then once you have a clearer picture of what's actually going on, it then allows you to sort of uh, zoom back and and try to yeah navigate where we're going to actually be heading from this because like who bloody knows at this point. Yeah, and um, I think I, I think that's the most important thing, right? None of us really know where it's heading, but yeah. we're all trying to make bets. Yeah, we can all speculate, and yeah. uh, and I think this for me was like a really clear kind of concise way of allowing me to go away and really think about the okay, how do I want to really position myself? Yep. Not even just from an investment standpoint, but from an, an economic standpoint. You know, yeah. like, like yeah. we're all got careers, we've all yeah. got businesses or, or, you know, future aspirations. And then it's really about sitting back and going, okay, well, what does this change for me, right? And, and how do I position myself moving forward? So, yeah. Well, uh, it affects your decision-making around buying a house, having kids, the lessons that you want to teach them, all those sort of things. We did a really good episode that released Monday with Josh, Josh Jones. And I, I started, because I think he's got a pretty interesting story around obviously being in the corporate world, leaving that. Yep. Now he's doing like, he's doing a little bit of video, videography, a little bit of investing, a little bit of coaching. Like he's kind of got his hand in it. And I think he's a good, uh, he's a really good representation of a creator. And, mm-hmm. and we had a really good conversation um, about the future of work and I think that's really important to, to what we're talking about now is how work could potentially change, how the financial systems could potentially change, probably will change eventually. It's already happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought it was a really kind of interesting conversation um, around and I wanted to share it with, first of all, you know, like you guys are going to get a, a link where you can um, – go away and actually watch this, but we're going to bring up some snippets, we're going to commentate, and we're going to really break this down for you so that you can really start to understand it. So you can mould those two together. Um, but, yeah, all in all, I thought it was a, a really important interview. Um, Absolutely. And he's been working on this for, what, the last 20 years or something. So um, he's obviously put a lot of thought into this uh, concept and it's obviously framed his decision-making and, and how he positions himself moving forward as well. So... Super interesting. Definitely. Um, so Rao is a so Rao's got a he's got a pretty good um, a pretty amazing um, what's a what's it called? Is it it's not resume? Is it resume? Yeah, resume. Yeah, yeah. he's got a really sorry, I just blanked it then. But he's got a pre, he's got a really good resume, right? Um, Ex Goldman Sachs head of investment for. Well, he used to work for them during their like prime years as well. So. You can only imagine how much money he would have. Right, been he was making. head of investments in the in in Euro, wasn't he? Yeah, for the European. Robert uh, Breedlove, someone I've only just come across lately. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he's just a Bitcoin bull. It sounds like yeah. I don't know what he's. I actually don't know what his background is, but he's kind of pretty prominent in that space. Mm. But so, this the the actual interview itself was on Robert's podcast. Um, yeah. He had Raoul on, so. So really what we're talking about here is, is an interview with Robert interviewing Rao and, and Rao obviously bringing you know, his framework of how he's looking at things, um, which, which was, was obviously very, very interesting. And, and, and I, the first time I listened to it, I had like, my mind was blown quite a, quite a lot. And it took me, I needed to decompress from uh, all the different ideas that uh, he brought up. And God, just made you think like, where we're heading after everything that's happened, you know? Mm, 100%. All right, so we're going to dive into this, um, and, and you guys will, will see the snippet that we're talking about. 
uh, pop up on your screen and you'll get to watch it and then we'll meet you back here and we'll, we'll have a little bit of a chat about it. But the Germany was rising and Britain was struggling to be able to meet this new rise of Germany. Then what happens is one of the greatest unintended consequences of all time was the shooting of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And suddenly a world that was still relatively gentlemanly, where we had gentlemen's warfare, turned into the biggest bloodbath in all recorded history, which was World War I. World War I was when Britain and Germany finally fought it out with the French in the middle. It was also the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire was one of the biggest empires the world had ever seen, and that had been in place for multiple hundreds of years, if not a thousand years, in various guises. World War I saw the end of the Ottoman Empire and a complete power vacuum of which Germany was filling. And 20 million people died. The world had never seen warfare of that sort because of the rise of technology. Tanks, planes, stuff like this. And it kind of shocked everybody. Europe was used to kind of gentlemanly warfare where we'd fight on the battlefields and then have you know drinks on the polo field, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But that world had gone. The kind of innocence of that world had disappeared forever. Mm -hmm. So what happens after World War I was where it really all began. It began in something called the Treaty of Versailles. In France, all the nations, the UK, the US, who was the rising superpower, Germany and France got around a table and negotiated the peace terms for World War I. In that was a war repatriation payment for Germany. And the British and the French, against the Americans' advice, was to impose a historically gigantic um, offset for the damage done to Europe. Mm. Because they were still trying to think in those terms of being a gentleman, you should be fined for what you did. Mm. I mean, Christ, right. 20 million people died. Yeah. So they reached this agreement, and in modern-day money, it's kind of half a trillion dollars. But economies were smaller. You know, this was an unpayable amount of money. Mm -hmm. So Germany in the 20s starts trying to pay this and simply can't. Mm -hmm. So they decide to debase their currency, and that is the German hyperinflation. You know, people confuse debasement with inflation. All right, so, so that's really interesting. And I think if you, if you think about it from the start and you kind of work your way through and you go, well, British up until that point were probably the powerhouse in the world. Mm -hmm. um, and like anything, you know, like, like at any point in, in society, everybody's fighting to, to obviously gain competitive advantage and really start to make progress against, you know, that power. Yep. Um, that's that's kind of the, the, the basis of, of the aspirations of country by country. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the Germans were at the forefront of that with, with World War I, industrialization, mm -hmm. a, a power really coming up. The rise of technology as well. So they were at the forefront of um, tank technology and... Uh, Air, airplanes and all that sort of thing as well. So they were building up this artillery base that <clears throat> was essentially making them more uh, 
it was they were the emerging market at the time. So they were the emerging superpower that was coming up. And so, um, as the video said, he, uh, the French and the UK, they were th- feeling threatened by this. And so this is what caused uh, World War One to happen. And then because they, uh, they ultimately won, obviously, and then uh, they put on these, um, this fine on Germany, that's what led to... Uh, basically a lot of poverty within the country because all of a sudden you're, you're wheeling around uh, wheelbarrows of money just to pay for a loaf of bread and all this sort of thing. And you, like, there are so many repercussions for that. And that's what ultimately led to the rise of Hitler. And, and then we, we lead on to the next stage of what's actually happened. And yeah, it was just mind-blowing. Yeah, I, I think the thing that you look at there, right, is like the, obviously the Treaty of Versailles is, what it, is, is that that agreement that everybody come to and, and then obviously because so many the amount of people that died and the impact on the economy and so on like someone has to pay mm-hmm. and the person who lo- not the person the country that loses the war is usually that one so then half a trillion dollars you know mm-hmm. is is re- this was pre like globalization as well so this is just like what they could produce as a country it was just it's um, impossible uh, yeah, as, yeah. as Rao said um so essentially what they had to do was they had to print more money in order to, to pay those repayments. That's the interesting thing that I think our audience may not understand, but I think if we explain it to them that they will. So basically so, when, you're, when you're in debt, you're in debt to, or based on a certain amount of money, a certain amount, right? Now, $1 to the naked eye looks like $1. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're debasing a currency, that's usually happening... Behind the scenes. You well, don't at, get at the time, that. everyone else was pegged to the gold uh, standard as well. So the British pound was pegged to the, to the gold standard. The US dollar was as well. Uh, and so, yeah, essentially Germany had to go off that in order to, to print more money in order to make these credit repayments. And that was the ultimate uh, decline of the German marks. Uh, and obviously through that, it, it led to a lot of hard times within the country and then that's what happened. And and typically when you see something like that, you have a lot of people who, who get angry and that's what uh, forms the left and the right. And then, uh, yeah, essentially just through that anger and, that, and all that violence is what happened um, to the rise of Hitler. And then obviously we know where that ends up. So when, when someone's debasing, so like, because I want to I kind of get the point across as to why they had to debase. Mm-hmm. Right, like why do because that's I, I feel like there's a massive correlation to what we're experiencing right now mm-hmm. you know like like there's no choice but to deb- debase the currency so in German's position why do they have to debase the currency well essentially so that, that fine was essentially a, a debt that the nation had to pay and so the only way that you can then uh, afford to pay that is to obviously print more money to because Typically, the only way that you can um, get more money into the society is to uh, obviously increase your GDP. And how do you increase your GDP? Usually, it's by uh, an increased production of um, your participation rate. So, the more people that you have within your system and the more goods and services that you produce, the the larger your GDP will grow. But this was in a time when we didn't have uh, globalization. And so they would have just been producing goods f- and services for within their economy and, and maybe to other nations around the EU. Um, but, and so because of that, the only way that they could afford to make those repayments was to artificially in, uh, inflate the money supply. Uh, and that's essentially what they did. Does, does, because they're increasing their money supply though, does that mean that it's, 
Naturally. Essentially, the country is becoming poorer. So uh, their purchasing power, as I said, they had to wheel around wheelbarrows of money just to pay for a loaf of bread, and that's all hyperinflation. But at first, it starts off really gradually. So you might start to see inflation at 3%, then 6%, then 10%. And then all of a sudden, you get to the point where um, like inflation's at 50% month on month. And then that's technically the term for hyperinflation. Then you get to the point where you see places like Venezuela and Zimbabwe where inflation's at like a million percent or something. Mm. And you're having to start printing like trillion dollar notes and that'll just buy you, a, I don't know, a carton of milk or something like that. Yeah. And so that's essentially what happened. They debased their currency, which made everyone within the country a lot poorer. Uh, and uh, yeah. And so the debt that they were paying, do they pay that in German? Like, do they... So, so does it mean the fact that because they're... Like naturally, when you're, because they're paying it in in, in German mark, right? The ho- my mind goes to this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be. But is it is it also because just by printing that money, that means they could you could potentially have the like you could inflate that debt away, which means you could probably pay it, right? But you pay it at the expense of everyone within your society. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yep. Awesome. Okay, that makes sense. So that that's a really, yeah. There's definitely a correlation at the moment, right? That we're seeing with with where we're at right now, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting. It's it's probably you know we're close to a hundred year period, so mm-hmm. you know it, it, I think there's a we can start to maybe. Well, this is interesting at a time because obviously all the other uh, currencies around the world were pegged to the gold standard too. So they had to take themselves off the gold standard in order to do that. And by doing that, you um, you relinquish all your gold reserves, the thing that actually uh, is your hedge against uh, basically going poor. And so uh, the only way to to obviously increase your um, your GDP and that sort of thing is to artificially inflate it, and that's what you do by printing money. And we'll go into that mm-hmm. in further detail as we uh, start to talk about what's actually happening now. Mm-hmm. So... The collapse of the British Empire leads to World War I, which leads to the rise of Hitler, which re- leads to World War II. 70 million people die. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's unprecedented. It's three and a half times the size of the number of people who died in World War I. Mm-hmm. And again, that was the shock that brought the next thing, which is the unexpected thing. Those things were kind of expected because, you know, geopolitics, they, they, they trend in certain ways. Yes, there was unintended consequences of the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand for World War I, but the collapse of the British Empire leads to vacuums of power, mm-hmm. much like when the US pulls out of the Middle East, it leaves a vacuum of power in the Middle East. Right. And before you know it, you create warfare and eventually everything settles down once people figure out their new role in, in, that, in that new, in, in the region. Mm-hmm. So World War II finishes. And here's the bit where humans made a mistake. What do they do? They're euphoric. And they go and have sex. And they create (laughs) the largest population boom the world has ever seen. And what happens in America is 78 million people were born in a 20-year period. The population grew by 40% in 20 years, and the global population grew by 30% Wow! in 20 years. Can you imagine if the US opened its borders and the population was allowed to increase by 40% from immigration? 
What would that do, right? Okay. And everybody thought they were doing it rational because what had happened after World War II was the New Deal. Mm -hmm. And the New Deal was this fiscal stimulus, and this will become relevant when we get much later in the story, Mm. was this fiscal stimulus where they basically, again, imposed financial repression by capping the yield yields, yield curve control, mm-hmm. allowed inflation to run relatively hot. It wasn't super hot, but it was hotter than bond yields mm-hmm. to lower the burden of debt. But then they fiscally stimulated in an unprecedented manner never seen before in world history. Mm-hmm. That stimulus and, and the Marshall Plan of rebuilding Germany and rebuilding Japan, mm-hmm. that stimulus created the boom of the 1950s. And the 1950s and 1960s were probably the last golden age we ever saw. With uh, On the back of the World War II, what did he say, 70 million people? 70 million people died because of World War II. And so at the end of the World War, uh, obviously everyone was excited, but then also we'd had 70 million people die. And so what do people do when they... Like, we, we get back to a, a world order and, and that sort of thing. They go out and celebrate and... Obviously, um, as he said, there was, what was it, 86 million people who were born over that 20-year period. And so, as I said, the the two ways that you stimulate your economy is to increase the labour supply uh, and also increase labouring, the goods and services that you produce. And so, what they do, they uh, increase the labour supply uh, at the greatest rate we've ever seen. And we will probably never see a uh, period where we, we see that much growth. And so that's why he was, what he was talking about is the 50s and the 60s was pretty much the golden age where everything was just expanding. Growth, like the economies within the world were just expanding at such a massive rate. Uh, and the way to obviously stimulate that is to, to print more money, essentially, that is to just have uh, really, really expansionary uh, fiscal policy. And um, in doing so, we saw a lot of innovation in... Uh, in goods and services, so for example, uh, washing machines and cars became a really big deal, uh, and that obviously led to more efficiencies and and that sort of thing too. Yeah, and this is all this is all this is all, you know, based on the fact that you know we incre- I think you said the global population increased by thirty percent, mm-hmm. U.S. population increased by forty percent. Yep. You know, and and he kind of used the term. Imagine you open the borders and you just allowed the population of the US to increase by 40% mm-hmm. in a 20-year period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where you're talking about the labour participation rates go up uh, and that's what created what he called the ga- the golden age of the 1950s and 60s. Yep. And then to fuel a lot of that growth or even at, you could almost say like add fuel to the fire, mm. you then, um, you stimulus in those times. Mm-hmm. Um, to so this is when you had the rise of like... Um Carnegie Steel, uh, you had, oh, what are the other businesses? Uh, you basically had these these giant monopolies that allowed, um, like we started to see billion-dollar organisations start to form during this time because uh, obviously there's more motor vehicles on the road and so that whole manufacturing division just started to expand rapidly. And so this was a, a time when people were actually starting to build wealth, which was crazy. Because, do you want to yeah? Do you want yeah. to talk about um, the 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 stimulus uh, and yield 
curve control. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, that dynamic, what that actually means, you know, yep. what does that mean for people? Because I feel, again... This is going to be, it's super technical. Uh, so, yield curve control is when governments come out and they manipulate the prices of their longer-term bonds. Uh, so, we do it here in Australia... Um, uh, where we go out and we manipulate our 30-year bonds and we basically keep the yields really low. And so in doing so, it um, basically it'll get people to funnel money into these sort of things. Um, or s- sorry, it'll stop people f- uh, funneling money into those things and they'll funnel into investment in businesses uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then because of that, uh, during the 50s and 60s, we saw a period where wages grew at a point where we've, we haven't, ever seen that because wages has basically been at zero since ever since that ter- uh, period of time. And so that's essentially what yield curve control is. It uh, allows businesses and governments to spend money on uh, their corporate uh, area within the economy in order to stimulate growth and to thrive. And that's what you want to do typically after a world war yeah. is basically try to grow your economy and, and get things back to, to feeling normal and, and everyone feeling prosperous again. Yeah. Do you, so, because then there's, what about when they, when he talked about allowing inflation to run hot? So, hotter than um, bond yields. Yep. To lower the burden of debt. So, yep. so, it, so it, typically when, when you go through a period of war, it's a time when you spend the most amount of money because wars, they obviously cost a lot of money to, to run and uh, you have to, you spend it. it's the greater it's the it's the biggest spend governments have exactly exactly and so because of that all these governments went out and they just spent a whole bunch of money and so the only way to then uh, mitigate that is to allow inflation to run a little bit hotter than their two to three percent uh, which is their current guidelines we're starting to see that now obviously as well uh, and so that's essentially what they were doing too. And because of that, it allowed wages to rise um, and that sort of thing during those times. Do, do you see a correlation between then and now? Like, yeah, it, well, it sounds like there's a massive correlation. And, and maybe, you know, we, we, there's, a, there's a probability that we could see a war soon. Um, but we've also seen a pandemic. Well, pandemics are very similar to wars. And so when you have something like the pandemic forced upon us where we, it was all out of our control... Everyone had to shut up shop, close borders, uh, which meant that supply chains were cut uh, and there was no uh, spending outside of uh, your economy and this sort of thing. So uh, because of that, we obviously had to simulate our economies uh, individually. And so what you do is you then go and print all this money uh, in order to allow... Like, you can't just shut businesses and say, like, here's no money for you to, to go out and, and pay for your rent and your mortgage and food and all that sort of thing. So they had to come out and spend money on us uh, so that we can at least afford to live and that sort of thing. And so it's exactly the same sort of thing that we see in World Wars where they go out and they print all this money in order to fund the actual war itself and then they allow inflation to run hot afterwards to pay off that debt. Um, and then typically during those times, you, as I say, wages start to rise, but then you have other issues that come along with that where the rise of other assets starts to take place. And then, so same thing happened back in the 50s and 60s where assets just started to rise, um, especially like property and and all these sorts of things. And then that causes further issues because uh, basically your purchasing power uh, deteriorates because of that as well. Yeah. And then on the back of that, that's where we see globalisation and... um, 
the infrastructure that really is the world we live in today start to really flourish. Yep. Um, you know, United Nations and, and so on. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you can't help but really look at that situation and everything that's happening there and really start to look now and go, okay, so we've gone through the pandemic. Inflation's running hot currently. There's the all these supply chain Stimulus, you know, is, is there. And it's it, – I don't, I don't have the technical skills, but I look at it and I go, okay, so they do this because they want a certain outcome, right? Mm-hmm. They want to they see the, the uh, economy get back to where it is. And, and so far that it has, you know, it's, and it's probably gone further. You know, productivity, you know – even though maybe it's a little bit artificial, it's still going, you know, and, and moving. Mm-hmm. But this is where I look at it and I go, I wonder how crypto comes into this because it seems like a lot of the money is funneling into crypto mm-hmm. and that's probably not something that they predicted. Yeah, and then, you know, we talk about the 50s and 60s boom and I just go, wow, like, you know, could this be, could we be entering, you know, could the 2030s and 40s, or you know, even maybe we're, maybe we're in it. Maybe we're in the golden age, right? Right now, uh, who knows? Um, There's also going to be a lot of pain uh, to get to that point as well, though, because we're dealing with. But 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 hasn't there will be definitely. But but maybe and and maybe we got it wrong. Maybe we've already been through the pain. Because mm. we still have to regulate it, and you still have so many people who are reliant on the old system as well. So any sort of change that comes from that. Uh, can be seen as quite volatile. And so you'll see, so a lot of pension funds have a lot of their money in old financial instruments like bonds and all that sort of thing, which have yields just pretty much on their way down to 0%. And currently in today's day and age, they're at, um, their real rates are in negative territory. And so you have a lot of baby boomers uh, money tied up in these pension funds. And if you have... Um, if you have assets like cryptocurrencies come through, we're going to see a lot of that money rush out of those sort of uh, places because they'll be attracted to yield. And so obviously you can get greater yield in cryptocurrency at the moment, but that will see the downfall potentially of these other traditional systems. And so because of that, uh, there's a moral dilemma there because a lot of we're coming to a point where a lot of people are retiring and they're relying on these pensions to, to obviously fund their retirement and all this sort of stuff. And so... Yeah, there's a lot of issues around how we sort of navigate that. I mean, it ultimately comes down to pension funds and insurance companies and that sort of thing, uh, basically changing up their, their narrative and, and, and shifting some of these assets into the, the newfound age. But, I mean, that's going to take time. That could be what, you know, that could be the domino, right, that sends yeah, I mean, all these crypto... Guys like Preston Pish and, and these sort of people, they are, they're championing that idea. Because it's their fiduciary duty to, to make sure that these people have enough funds for retirement. And if you see this asset class that is currently only worth $2 trillion, but it's growing faster than just about anything, I mean, you have to. Like, <laughs> you've just got to put your money into, the, into that space. And so we will see, uh, we will see a lot of money come into that space. And, and this could potentially be the downfall of bonds. You know, like, you look in the US at the moment, who are the... Uh, who are the people buying U.S. treasuries at the moment? It's literally the U.S. Mm. Nobody else. China's not touching it anymore. Mm. They're out uh, purchasing 
uh, resources all around the world, as in like ports and land and farming land and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And what they're doing is they're earning money in, in US dollar and they're going out and purchasing property, property essentially. Yeah, and that's what we've seen recently. I was talking about this with the Ugandan, Ugandan airport. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. they, they defaulted on their payment. Yeah. Uh, and, and now China, China's taking control of that. Yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, and that's... So they're, they're taking on productive assets uh, as opposed to... And they're using US dollar, which is debasing, uh, in order to purchase that. So they're getting rid of the US dollar that is basically losing them money and they're buying productive assets that in the future will make them more prosperous. Very smart. So smart. We see it here in, in Australia too. They've been purchasing land and instead of us taking out 99-year leases, we're just gifting it to them and all of a sudden China holds all the assets in the world, all the productive assets in the world. What does that mean? Well, like what does that clearly, mean for the world? They're you know? clearly the new superpower. Mm-hmm. America's losing that stance mm-hmm. rapidly because the only thing that America produces is the US dollar these days. They, sh- they got rid of their manufacturing um, division because of uh, the world trade um, agreements that were put in place back in the 90s. Which, which Rao does... He does talk about that, yeah. Yeah, he does talk about yeah. it, doesn't he? Yeah. Because then you see a lot of that shift over towards uh, China. So when we saw the downfall of uh, communism after the Soviet Union went under... Uh, China realised that they had to do something in order to make themselves competitive and they obviously had a lot of um, population growth and that sort of thing during this time. And so they realised that in order to shift themselves out of um, basically like the slums and poverty, they had to get themselves into manufacturing. And so during a time when we went from um, not being globalised, we went to this period where we became globalised and they started manufacturing all of the goods and services around the world. And then... uh, all the, like, NATO and the IMF and all this sort of thing, they champion all these uh, free trade agreements uh, which allowed the shift of um, capital and resources and and goods to be made overseas so that we could uh, expand emerging economies and and shift them out of poverty. Uh, And so what what ultimately happened was the middle class in Australia, in Canada, in the US, that all dissipated and, and, yeah... It shifted over to China, basically, and places like Vietnam and Indonesia and Malaysia and Singapore and that sort of thing. So, so it's those decisions that you know. So NATO was nineteen forty nine, yep. EU nineteen fifty seven, mm-hmm. United Nations nineteen forty seven. A lot of those decisions to globalize mm-hmm. has also led to the point where we're probably at now, where you know you've got such a, a huge wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um, the middle class doesn't exist anymore. The EU, the EU were like so countries within the EU were a little bit smarter. They still had gold reserves, and um, they were able to keep a lot of their manufacturing um, division. Especially, you look at countries like France and uh, Germany. They were able to keep a lot of their manufacturing because they they didn't shift um, a lot of that capital overseas. Uh, and so, ultimately, what that did was it put more money into the pockets of the the ultra rich. And then it shifted a lot of that wealth from the middle class and the, the working people uh, over to people over in China. And, and then that's sort of why we've seen the middle class in China just grow massively mm. uh, relative to everywhere else in the world. But then again, China had their own issues and they've been fueling their growth by printing money as well. So it's rife all around the world. 
Oh, interesting times. Yeah. We'll move on to the next clip. Yeah. So meanwhile, let's go back to these baby boomers. 1967, the first of them start entering the workforce. So they just, you know, hit their 20s and they start entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. Great. For the first of those guys, amazing. Mm-hmm. Then by 1975, the average baby boomer is now in the workforce. Mm-hmm. So you've got the highest increase in people in the workforce ever. And two things happen. Firstly, prices explode. Because if you think when you first got your first job, what do you do? You rent an apartment or, you know, right. you, you you have to buy, in the old days, a suit and tie. You have to buy tables and chairs. You have to, you buy yourself a car. Your marginal rate of consumption explodes. Yeah. When you're doing that on a global basis, it explodes beyond anybody's comprehension right it's the largest demand shock the world had ever seen and will ever see we will never repeat anything like that again so obviously supply can't catch up with demand so the oil price goes through the roof all commodities go through the roof everything goes through the roof right and so everybody's scrambling to catch up america can't deal with running twin deficits and being pegged to gold it's losing its gold supplies yeah, its currency is too strong, and in 1971, Nixon walks away from the whole thing. Yeah, and we go to the fiat money system because it's unmanageable with this population boom going on and the rising inflation and all of the other pressures that are going on. By 19, by 1986, the baby boomers enter the workforce. Uh, sorry, the last baby boomer enters the workforce. Mm-hmm. So you've got this period, which we refer to as the great inflation, which most people think of as being a monetary phenomena. I think is a demographic phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I can prove it. Every chart that I look at proves that it was demographics. Right. The monetary side, of course, played a role. But the reality was, if you were to put the same setup anywhere in the world, regardless of what you're pegged against, you've got the same demand shock. Right. And the world can't keep up, right? So that's that's probably, I think, where you start to tie and you start to see some of the, you know, like some of the biggest influences on where we're at right now, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so let's start at the boomers entering the workforce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we said, that's the generation that had the 30% increase globally, the 40% increase in... Um, it's the largest generation ever. Yeah, largest, large, largest increase in populace ever. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things we talked about previously was the globalisation, China, um, you know, obviously taking over a lot of the world's manufacturing. So what you start to see is... Obviously, all the boomers entering the workforce, yep. uh, and you combine that with uh, globalization and and obviously manufacturing leaving the country and and because you know, well, it wasn't it wasn't at this point. So a lot of uh, workers were still working for like Ford uh, and like 
General Electric and all these sort of companies in the US. Mm. And so a lot of, there were um, a thousand jobs. Um, like it wasn't like anything like today where you apply for a job and there's two, three hundred people applying for the same job. It was probably one in four or something like that. So there were a lot more jobs available to people. And as he was saying, this is a time when people were, uh, they're obviously getting themselves out there and then they were starting to, to get into housing and purchasing goods and all this sort of thing. And so that's where all of this money was, um, was being generated. And a lot of that was being produced by all of these workers too. So producing furniture, producing cars, all that sort of thing. Um, this was just a, a massive boom period within, uh, within the US's history. Yeah, and then, so you fast forward to 1971, uh, and do you want to explain a yeah, little so bit about that event? They were currently, so throughout that entire period, they were basically on the, the gold standard, uh, the Brentwoods gold standard, and so they were required to hold a lot of gold reserves in order to basically back their economy, to back the dollar, um, and that just gave them a lot of stability and that sort of thing. But then because they were seeing a period where there was just so much growth and they were running all these, um, these deficits uh, in order to, to keep up with that growth, they were having to sell off a lot of those gold reserves. Okay, so l- let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. So Bretton Woods, let's just say, let's talk about that in one sentence so that everyone can understand it. Because I think that's... So th- that's essentially just the gold standard. So essentially the, the US dollar was pegged to the price of gold. Cool. Perfect. Because yeah. I think, I mean, I, you know, I get that, and mm. I think it's, but I think it's, it's an event in history, probably the most significant event in history. Probably. Yeah. yeah. So, so um, I think that's important to, to identify and explain what it is. Mm. Um, and, and then why, so let's talk a little bit about why they had to, to leave that standard. Yep. So they were running, uh, and what's, it, what's a deficit? Yeah, so they were running uh, credit supply deficits, which was essentially essentially what that means is that they were uh, they were uh, spending and funding all of these different projects and on infrastructure and and the growth of the economy debt. and through debt. But they were in order to repay that debt, they were then having to use the, their gold reserves. So this was back in the day when the mint actually held on to vast amounts of gold. Uh, But in order to repay that debt, they were having to pay down their gold reserves. And so what they quickly realised was that they could basically go away from the gold reserve and they could just go back onto this fiat system, which allowed them to just print money at whatever cost, and then that would allow them to pay back these deficits uh, and continue to spend money on infrastructure and uh, healthcare and all these sort of things uh, that, that obviously make society and your standing of living better. So that's essentially what they did in 1971. Yeah, and and then there was repercussions, obviously, of that because and they didn't, they didn't. Sorry, sorry. Just before we move forward, they, yeah. they didn't want to do so. They, the reason they had to get away from that is so that they didn't lose or didn't have to spend their their gold, right? And or kind of you know their gold reserves, which means that that's that's a point where you can. It's basically the point of in or in our society. Well, it where just it basically can, restricted their growth by being backed by the dollar, or sorry, the gold uh, reserves that they had, it was restricting their growth because obviously when you've got that many people coming into society, you need basically a shitload of money to be able to expand and keep up with that pace. 
And so what they realised is that they had to go to a system that allowed them to print money in order to keep up with that growth. Exactly. So yeah. that and, and it's the printing of money. So when you hear that term printing of money and you kind of, you know, that gets thrown around a lot lately. They eventually changed the name to call it quantitative easing because then that sounds better because it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that they're debasing. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing I think here that you start to see, right, is like, Okay, so that's a, such a significant time in history because really that's the time where you can pretty much go out and print money whenever you want to stimulate economic growth, whenever mm-hmm. you need to. And they did it because there was a demand shock. Mm-hmm. And basically what you're talking about there is when you talked about the, the jobs before, right? There's so many people, right, caused by the, the big kind of increase in um, populace mm-hmm. from that the generation of the boom is just yeah. entering the workforce, which yeah. means because you've got so many people entering the workforce there's so many people competing for jobs which means that you're you're not short on talent Mm -hmm. right which and and if you're not short on talent you don't have to increase wages because Mm -hmm. people are more willing to work for or they're competing on for those jobs and in a you know we know this right when when there's more so it was was globalization that uh basically uh caused wages to to start to flatline essentially so during the 50s and 60s was a time when there was a lot of inflation and that sort of thing and because there was a lot of goods and services being produced wages were increasing and so people were actually growing their wealth uh, based on the money that they were able to bring home from their nine to five job Mm -hmm. and so as soon as uh, the world opened up and it started to become more globalized a lot of those middle class jobs were shifted over to to countries like thailand to China, to Vietnam and all these sort of places and it's because of that which allowed uh, the labour, the cost of labour essentially to, to flatline and this is what allowed um, these like super rich people became even richer whereas the middle class became poorer essentially. Because the other thing... Their purchasing know. power was decreasing as well. Yeah, but also because there's so many people driving the productivity side of it in the workforce you mentioned it before, but what those people go and do is they go and purchase property and they go and do all yeah, these things. Yeah, so we'll probably go into that next, but... Um, Asset prices. Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher enabled this um, basically free uh, or subsidised housing uh, and that turned people from creditors into debtors and then that basically uh, was the thing that caused us to, to go down this rabbit hole. We'll go into that. I think I think we're bringing up that clip, aren't we? Yeah, and and I think it's also important to realise is that when and and this is probably you know there's a book called The Fourth Turning, and it talks about how each generation has over the last they talk about it in five hundred years. Mm-hmm. Every hundred years, there's a fourth turning. There's a revolution, and they believe we're in the fourth turning right now, but. It's it's interesting because it's essentially the, the, the business cycle. Yeah. So that's what that's yeah. what the fourth turning is talking about. It's the business cycle and we're currently in the fourth turning, which is essentially the end of the business cycle and there's all obviously a lot of um chaos that, that ensues in those sort of periods. Of but time. I think it's interesting that the way they talk about it is you've got the, the prosperous, which is the first cycle. Yep. Then you've got the second cycle, which is all about world peace and equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third cycle is where it starts to turn negative. And that's where that's, that's the cycle we're talking about yeah, that's now. exactly. Right? Yeah. Because what you start to see is the boomers, they start to get the raw end of the stick. 
right? And it's caused because of that demographical increase, which has, it's like a domino effect to this point where you start to see asset prices increase, um, wages don't increase, uh, and that causes the people to start to get really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I don't want to piss off any boomers. I don't think we have many that listen, so I don't really care, to be honest, but too much. <laughs> but <laughs> you can, I think about Scott Galloway in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I honestly do. I love I loved the guy to death, but he's a negative person. And you think about, you think about, not all, but the, the general point of view that comes from the boomer and especially of how they see us, you know, because we don't follow the rules mm. that they once followed. We don't, you know, like... Well, this is coming from a guy who created economic wealth for himself as well. So he didn't follow the, the regular norm, obviously, exactly. and, and he created a, a means for him and his family and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, it's a little bit contradictory of him to, to come out and, and give shit to us, even though... Um, like it's through no fault of our own that we, we've got to this point, you know. So yeah. yeah, it is a bit unfair. Yeah, and we'll go into why it has been unfair. Like it, it's been unfair for baby boomers too. They, and it's been the, unfair for us. They're probably the ones who I reckon copped it the most. No, it's definitely our generation. You reckon? Yep. Because what did the baby boomers have that we didn't? They had free education. Yeah, but I think I think the difference is yeah, that's true. So they they came out of. Imagine like going through your 20s and 30s not in debt. We already start on the back foot from the, the moment we step into university. Mm. Do you think we're more aware of it though? I mean, we've, we've had to be, but I guess you and I are the exception because we've stepped away from that. The, I don't want to... We've stepped away from the slavery of, um, <laughs> of basically what a job is. Because the, the current system is we're indebted to the system. And so we have to basically go out there and, and repay our debts and that sort of thing. Uh, and so we've sort of stepped away from it. But the vast majority of people are still trapped in that system and, and they're slaves to the system. And we're going to get to that soon. That's, yeah. that's probably yeah. the next bit. But yeah, I just thought that like the boomers weren't aware of it. They come, out of, they come on the back of, an, of, of the golden age and they were promised... Well, they got, they got screwed over by, uh, by globalisation. So a lot of... Uh, a lot of people, so, like, I know we look at America and we see, like, this great country where a lot of people were prosperous and they did really well, and a lot of people did. But then there was also the people, as we say, who were in the middle class or in the lower class who did terribly because their jobs were offshored. Mm. And so because of that, they were promised the American dream where they were going to mm. get wealthy alongside everybody else, and they didn't. Yeah, that, that's the point, I think. That's why, you know, I made that comment of, I think they had it worse. Now... But um, they, we're not here, they're not here to compare, but... They also the, were, had a time where they were able to, if they got into the, the property market at the right time when the property was starting to really take off, uh, they were able to prosper from that. And then they also prospered from the rise of pensions and yeah. the rise of 401ks and superannuation and these sorts of things. And they also had a time where bonds were at incredibly high mm. um, yields. So they had yields in... a like in excess of 20% initially and then gradually that's been coming down and now we're at a point where we don't yields, have any of yields it. are at 1.4%. We literally have no means to, to create wealth. Yeah, we I mean, we, yeah. we do via the, the internet and we'll come to that, but literally there's no other means for us to create wealth. Yeah. And so that's why I would argue that the millennials... And so there were actually more millennials than there were baby boomers too. So 
uh, and because of the GFC and, and we'll sort of build up to what happened during the GFC, but because of the GFC, a lot of the baby boomers had to still continue working. And so because they had to continue working, it was coming up to a point where we were still, like we were starting to enter the workforce and there were no jobs for us. Mm. So, I mean, I personally think that we were the ones who were screwed the most and but I mean, it's up to conjecture. Obviously. But but uh, that's kind of yeah. So so you, I think you're right. I think definitely because we you know at least they had a means to create wealth. But we we were kind of and we didn't and we do. But it, it's we're starting on the back foot from yeah, from yeah. day and, and it's and it's and you know if you were to if you were to look at if we were to look at this as an average, you know, of like the the average verse from generation to generation, mm-hmm. you would see a massive. There's a reason why people are still living at home in their mid thirties. You know, because it's unaf- like housing market is unaffordable now. Mm. And that's because of all the policies that we'll, we'll continue to get into. But, I mean, it's unfair. And we're also, I mean, the baby boomers saw it too, where wages haven't grown at all. And the only thing that has been basically shifting the, the price of assets higher is the, the, be, uh, the debasement of currency. And, again, we'll go into that, but... I mean, yeah, we, we've come to a point where, like, we are seeing a revolution because we're at a point where there's literally no other choice. Yeah, I think the thing about the boomers that makes them, and I think why they, they, they you know, a lot of them are very angry, you know, is because they were unaware, you know, like, they were sold this dream and they probably thought they were achieving this dream, but in reality, it, it was... And politicians put different things in place thinking that it was going to be uh, good for society and... Like, we'll go into um, Thatcher and, and Reagan enabling um, the rise of, like, affordable housing and all this sort of thing. And they thought that that was basically doing them the right thing and allowing them to have an asset to their name and all this sort of thing. But down the line, it obviously, it basically it made them a slave to the system. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. It's a very interesting, you know. That, and they were. They were promised the American dream that they were going to get rich because they now all of a sudden they own a home and... Uh, homes were going to continue to rise and all this sort of stuff, but meanwhile, the purchasing power was um, decreasing, and they, as I said, they they went from being a creditor to now become a debtor. And as soon as you're a debtor, you're a slave to the system because you have to continually work your ass off to pay off this debt. And like you think that you're getting wealthier, but realistically, you're not. Yeah, and that that'll come into obviously that next section uh, yeah. a lot as well. But yeah. I think. That 1971 was such a significant time in history that mm. I think once you understand the dynamic of it, mm. you can really start to understand how we've gotten to a point where we're at right now. And people push back like because like we have recency bias and, and we have faith in the system and all this sort of thing. Like We trust that the government's doing the right thing for us and this sort of thing, but history dictates that all fiat currencies fail mm-hmm. because they do the same thing. The Roman Empire had the same problem. They were on a, a fiat system... They expanded, and the only way to expand that rapidly is to produce more and more debt. And then at some point, it crumbles because it becomes unaffordable to, uh, to repay. Mm-hmm. And so we're now at a point where we're starting to see that with, um, with all the, the fiat systems that we have currently around the world. And it's basically from all of these policies and, and everything that was put in place in order to help thrive and, and, and give us a better standard of living. We're now at a point where we're at the end of the debt cycle where... We're in that debt spiral and there's no way coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that's happened many times in history. Oh, like for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Awesome. All right, we're going to dive into the next snippet.
is Reagan and Thatcher come along. And it was really Thatcher who drove a lot of this. She figured out something really clever. And it seemed a good idea, but it had unintended consequences, as everything does. Thatcher's idea was, in England, we had what's known as council houses, free housing for um, low-income families. They were, you know, one of the benefits, like the National Health Service that came out of World War II, where we're like, we need to help people, you know, part of that big fiscal stimulus that came in the restructuring of the, of the political landscape. So people were living in these houses for free, and, and Margaret Thatcher decides, okay, what makes a conservative voter in the UK? A conservative voter is generally a house owner <laughs> because they are more tied to the economy. Right. So, and Labour voters, the left side of the spectrum in the UK, tend to be, tend to prefer state support. Okay, fine. The same left-right divide we're talking about. So Margaret Thatcher does a piece of genius, political genius, and I'd have said economic genius initially, which was, we're going to sell them these houses at ridiculously underpriced rates. And we're going to free these people. And that was a great idea. And the Conservatives won a lot of votes, obviously, because you're giving away assets for nothing. Mm -hmm. And people who couldn't afford housing now can afford housing and et cetera. And it wasn't great quality housing, but it was, it was an asset. But the issue is, is you turned all of these people into debtors. Mm -hmm. And they were creditors before because they didn't have access to debts because they had no assets. Mm -hmm. And now you've turned all of the poor people into debtors, hmm. and they've now become slaves. Hmm. Reagan sees the same thing and realizes that credit is his solution. So there's a massive deregulation goes on in the credit markets, hmm. and the rise of Wall Street happens. So the world starts financializing at an unprecedented rate. Both Reagan and Thatcher start, and then others afterwards start freeing up the pension system as well and start driving things like 401ks. Mm -hmm. So now people can invest in, their, in the markets, but that has another counterbalance, which is stock prices go up and people mm -hmm. can afford less of them with their hourly wages. Right. Property starts going up because people can now get access to debt. And nobody can afford anything. So everyone's on the hamster wheel now, running and running and running, and nobody can catch up. So we're into the 80s now, right? And we're now in the credit boom has started. Mm -hmm. And the cult of stock market has started. And the cult of property started. These things were not cults before. Mm -hmm. But with debt and this potential future, I could be the billionaire, that ridiculous mentality that drives humans and creates more desire for debt mm -hmm. ends in ends in the, the liberalization of Wall Street, the great free market. What we should do is open everything up to the free market. What that actually meant is you're putting the power in the hands of Wall Street. Right. And Wall Street became the epicenter of the US and global economy. Mm -hmm. And the city in the UK and all the financial centers and manufacturing didn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. It was irrelevant. So then the mid-90s 
1990, the next big shock, the Berlin Wall falls. Mm-hmm. And the fall of communism starts. All right, so let's talk about the Reagan and Thatcher and the decisions that they made and, and kind of talk about what's going on there mm-hmm. around low-income low families and obviously um, Thatcher having this kind of realisation. Um, so they wanted to essentially basically extend their terms and obviously you need to, to drive policies that will put people on your side. And so she realised that conservatives, as you say... Um, they typically like to own homes. And so what does she do? She creates uh, this sustainable housing where people could go in and they could get uh, basically free housing. And then she decides that we're going to just sell them these assets for undervalue. But what they're going to have to do is to use credit to buy them. And so as Raoul went uh, went into, basically he turned them from creditors who were just basically taking home money uh, from their jobs um, in order to, to basically fund their lives. Now what they were doing was in order to supplement uh, the, the purchasing power that they were, uh, they were losing out on, they were now supplementing that with debt in order to, to fund their lifestyles and this sort of thing. And, and as he said, it, it basically enslaved them to the system. And so it just made them poorer and poorer because now all of a sudden they've got less things to spend their money on. And as he said, that property prices now started to boom so did stocks, uh, they started to boom. And so with the money that they were taking home from their pay, they could pu- uh, purchase less and less of these assets. And so in doing so, it made them poorer in the long run because and, of it. And that's because wages did, aren't increasing. Yeah, wages aren't increasing because a lot of the jobs were starting to shift offshore. And because of uh, the rise of Wall Street and all this sort of thing, they realised that they could shift a lot of this money offshore too in order to develop all these uh, emerging markets. And this is where Wall Street could go out and, and create a better yield for themselves in order to put more money into their pocket via bonuses and that sort of thing. This is what they essentially did. And then, as we'll, we'll probably go into, this led to the Asian financial crisis because a lot of these emerging markets started to quickly expand and uh, build up their balance sheets uh, f- through credit and through debt, but their GDP, their economy wasn't producing enough money in order to um, to justify these high levels of debt. And so what happens? In 1997, there was an Asian financial crisis where a lot of these markets crashed 90%. So you had it started with Thailand, and then it shifted to, to Indonesia, to Vietnam, to Malaysia, all these sort of countries, Hong Kong, Singapore, and it just, yeah, it was a bloodshed, basically. Uh, I want to touch on the, the, the term you're making them slaves because I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And for me, I look at it and I go, okay, well, the reason you're turning them into slaves is because when you're not in debt... You, you have more freedom. You have more freedom, right? Yeah. And you're not... You know, like, and, and I think this is where this mentality of I need to buy a home. That, you know, He kind of talked about these cults because it's the only way that I can really keep my standard of living because I'm storing value... And that's obviously coming off the back of um, coming off the Bretton Woods system, mm-hmm. where they can print money and they, you know, they're doing so to stimulate the economy, which is driving asset prices up. <laughs> Sorry, it's driving asset prices up. Um, and then obviously they 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 kind of go to these low income, you know, earners and say, well, we're going to allow you to purchase property at a, at a low amount, but mm-hmm. the in 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 that low income per families mind they're like oh my god i get to own my own home i've never really thought about this before right 
I've never kind of never never even thought this was possible. And then all of a sudden, because you have to pay that debt off, you're now working into a system where again, you know, they they keep that. You know, we obviously know that um, you know the, the money printing and the economic stimulus is mm-hmm. coming in. Well, which is driving the asset prices higher and you're then exactly. in this mentality that, oh no, I'm falling behind and I have to spend more money, you know, or I, I'm not being, I've, I've got this asset, right, but, you know, um, obviously I'm in debt. So uh, You hit it, the nail on the head. So essentially what they had to do is they had to use credit in order to supplement the income that they weren't now producing because their purchasing power was depreciating. So what they go and do, they went out and they just took on more and more debt in order to to boost uh, their their means, and obviously that just led to them becoming more and more entrapped into the system, and so they had less say over what goods that they could purchase, uh, and so yeah, that's essentially what I mean by they became slaves to the system, mm. and then obviously this led to um, throughout the the period of the 70s and the the 80s it led to such a massive growth in credit that we got to 1987 where we saw a massive collapse we saw um jet the japanese economy uh completely like deteriorate basically and then this is when you had uh the the realization from alan greenspan that you could um you could basically manipulate the the system by cutting interest rates so, some of the notes that I've also got here. So, wages aren't going up. People start to recognise that they can borrow. Asset prices get to an all-time high. Uh, and, you know, if you were to look at... Uh, one thing that I think Rao said, if you were to look at um, per hour worked compared to asset prices, there's a massive... That's a, it's, it's, as I said, it's, a, it's the biggest discrepancy that we've ever seen in mm-hmm. society at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, which means purchasing power is at an all-time low, which is what you were talking about before. Yep. Um, that's you. You can start to see the repercussions of a lot of those decisions that were made on the back of again that increase in populace, mm-hmm. and start to see how all of these decisions really start to create a timeline, and you can start to piece together the direction in which society is going. But I think the interesting thing is when you think about Thatcher and and Reagan, and you mentioned it before, they needed the votes. And you can start to see how, and you tie it back to the position we're in now, but how having some type of hierarchical society can lead to major mistakes that have these long-term side effects Mm -hmm. that you can't see in that present time. And I think that's why... Potentially now you're starting to see the rise of decentralization. Well, that's all. So we we do have these central bankers eventually come out once they're out of office, saying, "Yeah, like we kind of knew what we were doing, but obviously they can't say that when they're in term because mm. you're going to get a backlash." Uh, and so Alan Greenspan, he's since come out saying that, "Yeah, we knew that we were manipulating the money supply, and uh, we knew that there was going to be a lot of issues." But I mean, that's just the system that we found ourselves in. And so you sort of just have to play the game. You don't really have a choice. Mm. And again, that's a consequence of some of those major decisions that yeah, were made. Yeah, exactly. Like and so this is why economists look back on what happened in the past. Mm. Uh, they always like they always say that past actions don't determine what uh, is going to happen in the future, but often they rhyme. So 
this is why we often look back uh, and and basically try to use what's happened in the past to try and um, predict what we think is going to happen in the future. And then the mindset of needing to maintain my standard of living leads to that 87 crash that you were talking about. Yep. Uh, and Well, everyone starts to leverage up because they're like, they've got this moonshot idea that they're going to become a millionaire, they're going to become a billionaire because they're starting to see that everyone else around them is starting to, to prosper because they're using these sort of facilities. And a lot of big corporations, they were able to lever up, which they made them even wealthier as well. Yeah, and, and that, fear, that, that, that need to feel like you need to participate. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all um, like we're social creatures and, and we like to sort of compare ourselves to other people and we want to feel included. And so what do we do? We all copy each other. And but it, yeah, that's also driven right. by this, you know, you see everyone else living at this standard and I don't want to be down here. That yeah. kind of gives me that judgment that yeah. you just talked about gives me that discrepancy. It was like, yeah. well, they, their standard of living here, am I losing mine? Mm-hmm. And that's all caused yeah, again. Your friend's gone out and they've bought a nice home for themselves. You're like, oh shit, oh, maybe. That <laughs> resonates so much right now, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Right, it, it feels like that is what we just went through in the yeah. last eighteen months. With well, property. it's like your friend goes out and buys a, a nice, a, like a really nice car, and the you fucking gram doesn't help. <laughs> you well, thought it was right. bad then. You should see what the fucking <laughs> gram does to you. It's so true. It's so true. You just want to validate yourself, uh, and yeah, you, you put yourself into debt because of it. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and then the credit boom. So. You know that was that was the and and you know you kind of talked about the the again the 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 leading effects you know that come after the credit boom, but um, people you know over leverage. Yeah, they over leverage in order to to stimulate their economies, and if you don't have incomes increasing at the same rate, that puts you into trouble. And obviously, what the market's going to do, it's all it's going to correct itself. And so that's what we saw, uh, especially with the Asian financial crisis. Uh, in the in 1997, where we had all of these emerging markets just basically lose 90% of their value, mm. and it's taken them 20 years to to get back to where they were. Uh, but these are the these are the repercussions of what happened. And and just one final thing on this: Can you explain interest rates? Because that's a big one as well. Because mm-hmm. that the that's the initiation of the tool that that the the Fed thought that they could yeah, use. Yeah, so we saw it in 1987, uh, and also in uh, 1997. Uh, they realised that they could manipulate the interest rate uh, by cutting rates, uh, which allowed uh, businesses and uh, the rest of them to go out and get cheaper interest in order to stimulate the economy. So what you do when you're decreasing the interest rate is it allows um, the cost of capital, it becomes a lot cheaper, so you can go out and you can uh, leverage yourself up to basically stimulate yourself and to to boost your, your... um, your supply and, and all this sort of thing and obviously that helps to stimulate the economy and so that's what they realised during the 1987 they didn't have a recession the downturn only lasted a couple of months because they were able to <laughs> basically stimulate sounds familiar yeah well exactly so the same thing happened in 1997 too so the, the Asian crisis happened they came out and they realised that we've now got this new tool in the toolbox let's decrease interest rates and uh, we might be able to protect ourselves from having another recession and that's what they did so they manipulated the business cycle and so what they should have done they should have allowed those um, recessions to come which would have helped to neutralize the whole system again they would have got a lot of debt out of the system 
The only issue with that is a lot of those people would have become unemployed. A lot of businesses would have gone out of business. And so that's the sort of thing that they, um, they're trying to avoid to happen. And you can see how all of a sudden, again, these previous decisions force politicians not to do what's best for society, but in, more importantly to do what's best to get them into, into, to get them the votes. Because that, that, that thing, you know, that again, like who wants to have a depression next to their name? Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right, like no, who, yeah. and that's the problem that we see now. And then we we just we I keep mean, they, the one, the politicians that we have in place now, they don't have a choice. Yeah, because but I even would say that you know in eighty seven and more, probably not eighty seven, but more so ninety seven. Once you make that decision to cut rates, you've got that tool in the tool belt, and mm. it's like okay, well, you know, you got to have some pretty big balls mm. to turn around and say, nah, like I'm willing to sacrifice the people now for the people in the future. Yeah, yeah. And the repercussion of that too um, from 1997, so a lot of the money that uh, Wall Street was basically utilising and they were shifting into those emerging markets, because those emerging markets crashed, they wanted to then spur growth in another factor. And so what they discovered was that this was a boom in technology. So a lot of that money started coming back onshore, back into the US, and what did it do? It created the biggest bubble we've ever seen, uh, the tech bubble. Uh, and obviously that collapsed in, um, in 2000, 2001, because as all uh, bubbles do, they, um, they diverge from the price of gold, from property, all these sort of things. And, and ultimately, we saw another crash. Uh, we saw more uh, interest rates coming down and the cycle repeats itself. Yeah, and I think the most important thing to understand here is that every time they cut rates and we go into more and more leverage, household income, because you know, we're not seeing wages rise compared to household debt, is at an all-time high, which means mm-hmm. our purchasing power is at an all-time low, mm-hmm. which means the wealthier get wealthy. Sorry, the wealthier, the wealthiest get wealthier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously the, the low-income earners you know, yeah. don't see that because they can't afford to get into some of these assets. Yeah. And then, so then the repercussions of the tech bubble uh, collapsing was that people, like, they needed a new place to, to try and make their wealth. And because interest rates were now at record lows, because this is what they do when there's put, uh, uh, the potential for a recession, they reduce the interest rate, so the cost of borrowing money becomes cheaper. And so what do they do? They funnel that money into the property market. And so we see from 2000 up until 2007, property market just goes absolutely ballistic and then what's actually um, collateralized from all of that it's houses who are caught up in the houses it's the banks mm. and so what do the banks do with all of that collateral they go out and they spin it into all these cdos and all these um, really technical financial instruments and they just lever up the system to the point where it becomes unsustainable and we see the market collapse in 2007, 2008. But in the meantime, something ugly is going on, and it's the labor force participation rate. Mm. So that peaks a couple of years after all of the baby boomers are in the labor force. Also, adding to the baby boomers in the labor force, the double shock of the demographics was women came into the labor force too mm-hmm. in record numbers. Right. Why? Because the household, they had to, because the cost of the cost of all this stuff had gone up. 
So you had to put women in the workforce and pay nannies to look after your kids. You know, it was a complete change. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't the right thing to do. Of course it was. But people were forced to whether they wanted to or not. Right. So you had to have these double income households. Yeah. Because of the indebtedness, right? Exactly. Because the indebtedness and the rising asset prices. So your future self is getting poorer. So you're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I need to catch up. I need to catch up. We both need to get a job. We need to work two jobs. Mm -hmm. Labor force participation rate eventually starts falling after 2000 as people start kind of just falling by the wayside Mm -hmm. as their jobs are gutted. Right. So this is the globalization and technology problem we talked about earlier is in the end, people just can't get jobs. Mm-hmm. So you get this labor force participation rate falling. And then it starts happening as the boomers start retiring, which is they start, they hit their fifties in 2000. So the ones who are lucky enough they remember the ones at the beginning of the full cycle mm-hmm. were the ones that were lucky. Those are the ones who get to retire. Those are the ones who manage to do that. Labor force participation rate falls. Why do I keep talking about the labor force participation rate? Because it exactly maps velocity of money. Hmm. So velocity of money collapses because of demographics. Because the older the population gets, the less the money circulates. Right. Yeah. You see your parents, how do they spend compared to you? It's very different. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you retire, you spend even less. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw my dad go through retirement. Problem is, is you get a fixed pool of money and an undefined age that you're going to live to. Right. So the natural human behavior is to be cautious. Mm-hmm. So you collapse your spending because the last thing you ever want to do is be 85 years old and destitute. <laughs> right. It's just normal human behavior. So aging populations always have lower growth. Fact. Yeah. And that is provable via the labor force participation rate or the birth's deaths rate. It's exactly mirrors it as you'd imagine. So CPI, velocity of money, GDP growth are all a function of demographics. But the other shocker is what happens next? So the next part of the story, and it's all interrelated and it all comes back from that World War I and the collapse of empire, Mm -hmm. it all comes, is we've now hyper-financialized and the weakest balance sheets in the world are the households. Mm-hmm. And behind that is the banks. So you start wiping out the household balance sheet by property prices falling, mm. and you have the biggest financial collapse in all history, pretty much, maybe since the 1930s. So that's the debt burden. So. The first thing that he mentioned there was obviously women entering the workforce, which I think is a, you know, previously what we've been talking about with our commentary of it all is obviously the fact that purchasing power was, was, was continuously reaching all-time lows, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, individ, as, you know, households, in order to keep their standard of living, would kind of be on their hands to earl and almost chasing, you know, um, richness mm-hmm. uh, and then... In order to, and then that drives them into, you know, um, more and more debt. And in order to, so the reason why their purchasing power is decreasing is because their like their mortgage repayments were becoming more and more uh, expensive because the, as the assets were increasing, so the property price was increasing. Obviously, you had to take on more debt to facilitate that. And so back in those days, 
typically the man was the one who went out and um, was was working a job in order to to pay for those expenses and that sort of thing. But because the indebtedness had reached such high levels, mm-hmm. uh, the women were having to go out into the labour force too. And so this is another contributor to the <coughs> the participation rate. So the labour force had increased so much because now you had. Uh, all of these baby boomers in the system and you also had all of the women now working as well. And so this is why we saw such a massive uh, increase in productivity and all that sort of thing. Uh, And so that's why eventually we started to see the participation rate decline because now all of these people were starting to leave the workforce. They're getting older. Yeah, they're getting older. And that was in the 2000s. So in the 2000s, you started to see the boomers, the first lot of the boomers start to leave the workforce, we've yep. seen the labour participation rate drop, which Start means drop. a decrease in productivity. Exactly, exactly. And because the income of the uh, economy is starting to decrease, meanwhile the debt is starting to just spiral out of control as you have more and more credit going into the system, well, I mean, it's pretty easy to see what's going to happen next. Uh, and I think the interesting thing that Rao said was labour participation rate, you know, exactly... Directly correlates with the velocity of money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, do you want to explain um, velocity? velocity? Yeah, so the velocity of money is basically uh, the amount of money that sort of changes hands. So, obviously, like when you're in your 20s, uh, a lot of uh, the money that you bring in is going to go out on on things like rent, on going out and um, like shopping for, for clothes and shopping for furniture, buying like food and, and that sort of thing. Uh, obviously, the older you get, as Ralph said, uh, you sort of you retire at a specific age with a certain amount of money, not knowing how long you're going to live for, and so because of that, you become a lot more conservative with your spending. I see it with my grandma too, very limited on what she spends her money on, uh, because she doesn't know when it's going to run out, and so this is what he's uh, getting to when it comes to the velocity of money. So as these baby boomers start to retire, their spending within the economy starts to decrease. Again, this is a massive uh, problem for the economy because the income of the of the economy, the GDP, is starting to slow down. The only thing that is increasing the productivity is the amount of credit that's in the system. Yeah, and I, th- you know, that kind of that his statement around you know CPI velocity of money and GDP growth are all a function of demographics. Yep. Which then again takes us back all the way to you know, when the boomers were the largest population growth in, in history mm-hmm. in terms of rate of population. Yep. Um, you know, and, and as you said, when, when they start leaving the workforce, you know... Um, it just becomes harder for the system to, to keep chugging along. Yeah. And so the, the government realised that the only way that they can continue uh, keeping it basically on its journey is to just continue to quantitative ease. <laughs> <laughs> Print money. Print money, yeah. Um. Cool, and this again continuously leads to obviously the weakest balance sheets um, that we've seen in terms of households, you know, and behind all. And they're weak. The, the balance sheet is weak because uh, they have hold a lot of liabilities. So obviously, a balance sheet is made up of your assets and liabilities. The asset is essentially the equity that you build up in your home. Asset. I, I like to argue that your home isn't actually an asset because it's not an income-producing thing. Uh, but yes, the equity that hold, uh, that is held within that, the house is an asset. But because you have more liability, you have more debt on that thing, this is why he says that the balance sheet is at its weakest sort of level. So the debt to, the debt to, debt to asset ratio is yeah, extremely high. Yeah. Which we mean, see it today too. 
Yeah, and and then behind all of that is the banks, uh, and yep. uh, you know because that, they're the ones who uh, they're the ones who provide the credit to the customers in order to they're the ones who provide the mortgages. Yeah, yeah, um, and that leads to obviously the two thousand and eight crisis. Yep, uh, and that's obviously the biggest financial crisis in history. Yes, because it had the banks tied into it, uh, and they had. Um, over-financialized the whole system by, as I say, they had all of these insurance, um, they had these credit default swaps, they had the CDOs and everything like that. So basically, they took a mortgage and they were able to compile all of them within to these different tranches and they were able to uh, create these CDOs, which is essentially a bond that's made up of, of mortgages. And then they were able to on-sell those because they could uh, provide a certain yield for those sort of instruments and then they just made more and more of these synthetic uh, CDOs. And then what they did was uh, they created these credit, uh, credit default swaps were basically insurance items that hedged against those... Um, those mortgage-backed uh, bonds. And so it just allowed the system to just completely... And that's what we call like the collateral. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so they kind of created these things that were hedged against their collateral yeah. and then obviously that led to what was that 2008 crisis. Yeah, and, and basically what happened was because uh, a lot of people started defaulting on those loans, the housing prices started to decrease and what that does is it pushes out... Uh, the leverage that those banks have and because they can't now make those repayments on those, they start to go under and this is why we saw companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and that sort of thing um, eventually go into um, liquidation. And that's the domino effect. That's the domino effect. But then the central bankers realise that what they can do is they can increase... Or hold, they on, can hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. Hold on, that'll come, that'll come. That'll come. Um all right, ladies and gents, I, first of all, that is the, the first part of the mini-series. Um, so we're, we're really diving deep uh, at the moment. We've kind of gone through history up until the two th- 2008 financial crisis. Um, so interesting. You can see how it all pieces together. What we're going to be going on, going into on the next episode of this mini-series, the finale of the Investors Podcast is really touching base on the technical side of things. So really kind of looking at um, labour participation rates, um, Fed balance sheets, and then talking about what happens after the financial crisis. And that will be leading into, you know, kind of where we're at right now. And and then we'll be having discussions about what are the potential futures uh, and what do we all think, you know, where do we all think this this is going? So if you really enjoyed that, you've got to make sure that you set the alarm clock for next week because it's going to be absolutely huge. Thanks for tuning in, guys. I uh, really hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, let us know what you think. Reach out. Shoot us messages. That's what we really love. Uh, and most of all, if you did enjoy it, make sure you subscribe. See you next week for a massive episode. Let's just go and see the world and just show them What it really means to live like golden Yeah, we're golden, baby, girl, we're golden